y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. When I was a kid, most of my heroes were fictitious characters from literature or movies. Bilbo Baggins, Luke Skywalker, Rick Hunter, Indiana Jones, and so on. And they were perfect characters because they weren't real. Then as a teenager, I began plastering my bedroom walls with musical heroes, who while real and obviously were talented in touching the human heart with their artistry, let's be real, they got paid lots of cash to more or less strum a guitar, live in mansions, and be adored by millions. Some did try to use their platforms to relay helpful messages, but never while in any kind of imminent danger. Many of you also have probably looked up to athletes, writers, actors, and others who fit into this category. Nowadays, I still have heroes, or at least folks whom I admire greatly, as to try to avoid worship or idolatry. But these individuals actually have many of the attributes the fictional ones had courage to speak and act in the face of danger. Some even, to paraphrase Jesus Christ, having to lay down their lives for their fellow man. It's funny how a lot of those who I looked up to in my teenage years sought attention, while my heroes of today are quite uncomfortable with not only the spotlight, but the label of hero, downplaying their efforts or virtue even. Maybe that's why so few people know who they are. All that to say, today I get to speak to one of those individuals whom I greatly admire and wish I had a fraction of her bravery and persistence, and who also happens to be the daughter of another one of my, for lack of a better word, heroes. Rosa Maria Paya is a human rights activist and founder of Cuba Decide, an initiative that is attempting to reintroduce democracy to the Cuban island. Currently, Cuba is ruled by a brutal communist regime, Rosa Maria's father was Osvaldo Paya, who founded the Christian Liberation Movement, which also attempted to push the Cuban government to finally fulfill its undelivered promise of free elections. Unfortunately, Osvaldo Paya was one of those men who ultimately gave his life while attempting to better the future of his fellow Cubans. Rosa Maria will tell us about the work of her father in addition to her own efforts and even what you here listening to this can do to help. To become politically active uh, is a decision with certain negative consequences, uh, both for the individual and the people and family around them, especially like a repressive country like Cuba. Do you know what was the impetus for your father, Osvaldo Paya, to take that step, knowing full well that he was going to go up against a regime that doesn't care about human life all that much? There was a combination of factors. The first one was that he was convinced that he was doing what was right to do. He was doing uh, what the Cuban uh, people uh, needed, need actually, Mm -hmm. and uh, what they deserve also. And my father had a very strong faith I mean, he was a Catholic, but he was a, a man of faith, a faithful. And that gives him also an strength to um, do what he think was the right thing to do. 
with dignity, with bravery, uh, but but also with with peace, with peace in the mind and the heart, and just following his ideals that were also, and I think still are, the more profound dreams and desires and actually the will of the Cuban people, even in the midst of repression. If I have to add a third factor, I would say the confidence in the victory. And I know that this this could sound um, polemic, given the fact that we are, well, we have been a people submitted under a dictatorship for more than 61 years right now. But my father was convinced uh, that the people have the power to change their destiny, that we as human beings, we have that power. And he lived his life exercising that power. That's why he was not doing something crazy or that separate him from the rest of the Cubans, but of the contrary. He was doing something that he knew he could do. And he also knew that we as as the people, as Cubans, we can overcome communism. We can overcome tyranny. We can transform our society. And that's what he did with his life and we, what we try also to continue. What did he do for a living? Well, my father was a physicist, actually a professor, a teacher of physics. And he was also engineer in telecommunications. So the last 20 years, he worked as an engineer, but in the biomedic camp. It means he was fixing and taking care of the medical equipment in almost all the hospitals in Havana. Especially, he was uh, he was he was an expert in everything that was took care with fluids, especially oxygen. So he was uh, it was very common to see him in ERs, in emergency rooms in Havana hospitals in general. Did his activism affect his job or endanger his living? Well, my father loved his job also. So uh, in the sense that. It was not affected because he was doing both things with um, with a lot of energy. But the Communist Cuba is a place in which everything is controlled and not just controlled; it's owned by the by the regime. So my father was an employee of the regime, as we are all in Cuba. Right. So the regime used that to punish him and, of course, treat him in every bad way that they could. The thing was that he was so he was so good in his job and so needed in, in something that as delicate as fixing medical equipment that he was he was demanded by doctors, by hospitals that called for him to go uh, to fix and to take care of their equipment. So it was a hard equilibrium in the last 20 years of his life in which uh, he were he was persecuted by the regime. The state security was 
following and sometimes escorting him even into the hospitals where he was working uh, to talk with the doctors, to talk with uh, bosses, to try to complicate things in his work. But for some reason, even when they threat several times with pulsing him, they never did it. And I think that the reason was that his work was also needed. That uh, the, the work that he was doing, the, the way in which he, were, he was also helping society in that way was, was a need of, of the state in that moment, actually. And he was just doing his job as good as he, as he could. Mentira fresca habló otra vez por televisión Nos dijo a todos que aquí no habría devaluación mentioned your father's faith and uh, of course the party that he founded was called the Christian Liberation Movement. Can you talk about his beliefs because of course throughout Christian history there's been uh, a lot of debate about how a Christian should act politically or within the government. You know some say you shouldn't do anything that you should you know keep your religion in your church or something like that or keep it to yourself. Some say you you, you gotta get involved. Uh, then there's all kinds of arguments about what that looks like. Do you know maybe what inspired your father to take the route that he did? I don't remember in a specific conversation on, on this, but I think that my father was a believer of the public mission also of the religions. But uh, having said so, the Christian liberation movement, that was the movement that he founded to... Uh, to try to change the system in Cuba towards democracy, was Christian in inspiration, but but it was not a confessional movement. I mean, the membership of the Christian liberation movement was integrated by people with beliefs and people uh, without beliefs. People that share the inspiration of the Christian humanism, but uh, not necessarily people that were uh, practicing any kind of religion. My father was a was a Catholic, but the rest of the membership had different beliefs and, and even non-belief uh, at all. Now, if we are going to talk about his personal belief, his um, faith, I think it was a very important part of why he was taking the risk that he assumed why he was trying to transform the society for the better. And it, it is uh, because he had a commitment with his brothers and sisters and their brothers and his brothers and sisters were the Cubans in that moment uh, in the place that he was living and was out of that commitment also that he um, carried on everything. What did his party, the Christian Liberation Movement, what what do they want to accomplish? Uh, one of the things they're known for is the uh, Barilla Project. The Barilla Project was an initiative of law to transform the communist law in order to make the law uh, to protect some fundamental human rights, as freedom of expression, freedom of association, also, the liberation of the political prisoners, the possibility to have private enterprises, and a new electoral law. The Cuban Communist Constitution, that was and is very bad, uh, allowed uh, in one of its articles 
allowed the Cuban citizens to use the tool of the initiative of law to uh, make their proposals. And the condition is that initiative of law have to be supported for at least 10,000 citizens. In that moment, in the moment that you collect more than 10,000 signatures, that initiative of law immediately transformed into a project of law. And the National Assembly has to discuss it. So it was a kind of a, a the, bit of a democracy, but they never allowed it to actually happen. That's the thing. In 62 years of communism, the only one that has used that is the Varela Project. Uh, tens of thousands of Cubans that actually signed that uh, petition of law. The thing is that the uh, communist regime violated their own law not to answer to the Varela project. And they didn't end that there. They start a wave of repression, a great wave of repression that was then known as the Black Spring in 2003. And they put in jail almost all the leaders of the Varela project. Because as you can imagine, yes, my father was the founder of the Varela project, behind the Varela project. But this was a citizen initiative. This was something that grew within the society and many other Cubans became leaders of these collections of signatures, of this big campaign trying to conquer the very basic human rights that the Cubans are not enjoying in that moment or now. So it, it, it became a a reason to have hope within the Cuban society. And of course, it becomes also a big risk for the regime that immediately classified the Varela project as the biggest threat ever, or at least in the last 20 years. And they start to persecute anyone who identified with the Varela project. Mm -hmm. Even under that persecution, even under repression, even when People that collect signatures in, in Cuba could be uh, beaten in the street, could be sent to jail, could be menaced by the Cuban state security, could uh, lose his or her job. Their families could suffer also um, threatens, intimidations, persecution. Even under those conditions, tens of thousands of Cubans signed mm. the Varela project. So the regime was in panic. And they reacted with the violence and the aggression that I just narrated. They put in jail almost all the leaders of the Varela project, but my father. To him, they had um, they had another plan. Right. Uh, a few a few years later. Well, can you talk about what that plan was, uh, and also like from your experience, do you what do you remember about that day? The day they killed my father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was common for for my father to travel within the island because of the work that he was doing. The movement was present in almost the whole national territory, so he had to travel and visit some of the members and campaign. So he, at, at least three, four times a year, he traveled around the, almost the whole island. But for Cubans, was uh, forbidden to rent cars. So what we did in that moment and what my father um, used to do was 
to ask to the solidary people that visit the island to to know him or to help him or to get in contact with the Cuban opposition, sometimes just friends. My father asked them to rent a car and to act as drivers for a couple of days, for three days, in order to be able to actually travel around the island because otherwise we cannot do it. Or my father had to travel using the network of national transportation, which is always under surveillance of the regime. So they know exactly what he is. They could uh, actually sometimes travel after him or with him. So it's, it, it was easier to do it in this way. Uh, the, the foreign friends that visit uh, my house sometimes also drive my father because it's, it, it was almost the only way to do it. In this occasion, they were traveling to Santiago de Cuba, which is the second city in importance in, in the island. And my father was in company of two friends, uh, one Spanish, one uh, Sweden. And also he was traveling with Harold Cepero, which was a dear friend. Harold was 32 years old in that moment. He was the young leader of the movement. He was probably the, the second or the third in charge in the movement in that moment. And he was accompanying my father to Santiago de Cuba. It was usual. Also, it was common that even when they were traveling, they depart very early in the morning, even when they took all the measures that they could, usually the state security detect them in some point of the road. So it was usual that they were followed by other cars of the Cuban secret police. And in this case, they were also being followed, but in, in some point of the road, the car of the state security hit the car of my father from behind and took them out of the road. The next scene that uh, we knew is that the foreign friends were in the hospital, that Harold was very badly ill and that my father was missing. A few hours after, we learned that my father was killed that Harold mysteriously died and that the foreign friends were no place to be found. We knew that they were in the hospital, but they were uh, incommunicated. And they remain incommunicated uh, forever. The Swedish guy was a week in Cuba, incommunicated, and then spoke from the country. The Spanish guy for, was actually um, prosecuted by the by the Cuban regime in a in a in some kind of theatrical trial and condemned and then expelled to Spain during all those months no one could never see him my father and Harold in an non-explicable way were reported dead one in the hospital and the other after a few hours in the scene we knew from the beginning that it was the result of an attack from the state security because we had the test messages of of actually of the foreign friends that were asking for help saying that they were surrounded by the military that they were 
hit from behind and put out of the road. So um, we have no doubts um, that my father was killed by the Cuban secret police. Also, my friend Harold was killed by the Cuban secret police. Actually, there are a lot of witnesses that said that he was no attended in the hospital. They was just He was just left to die mm-hmm. in the hospital. We started to demand a clear investigation, a transparent and independent investigation. Would they never allow us to do that? We demanded the autopsy report. The Cuban regime never even gave us the autopsy report of my father or Harold Severo. And they start to uh, accuse us and to threat us. When I said us, I'm referring my mother, my brothers and I. They even got to call my house to say, I'm going to kill you a few months after they killed my father. So for us, it was almost impossible to live in Cuba, but not just that, it was almost impossible to continue the investigation that we anyways continue with the resources that we had that are not a lot. But even when we are sure that there are much more evidence in this case, the evidence that is available is enough to prove that the death of my father and Harold was the result of an attack of the Cuban state security. And that could only be ordered by the head of the state. That could only be ordered by Fidel and Raul Castro themselves. Big, it was in July 22, 2012. We have continued the investigation. We have continued the uh, demands uh, in front of the of international organizations, international community in general. There is only one public independent report that has been published. That was the work of the legal team of Human Rights Foundation, which is an, it's an, it's an NGO based in New York. And it concludes what we already knew, that my father was killed in an attack provoked by the Cuban state security. Retaliation for all that he was doing. But I would add also because of the fear of the regime. I mean, the Cuban regime knows, knew in that moment, and they still know, that the end is coming in a way or or another. Mm -hmm. And that the Cuban people want the same thing that my father was asking for and was working for. So my father embodied the alternative to the regime and tyrants and communists in general, they cannot deal with the alternative. Mm -hmm. They cannot talk with the alternative. They only know the language of the force, mm-hmm. the language of the violence. So they, they killed the alternative. In a way, they made him into a martyr, just like with so many people like Martin Luther King Jr. or Jesus or whoever, they make the message of that person much more stronger. Definitely. His legacy didn't die with him. All the contrary. Less than a month ago, you had hundreds of 
young Cubans protesting in the street and the first phrase of their manifest was a phrase of my father. We have the right to have rights. So yes, they failed. They failed miserably and and that work that my father started is the one that we have to finish right. right now. So when you look back through history, the political left, not only do they kill anybody who threatens their power, but they also have to destroy their reputation or ruin their name, character assassinate, as we say. How do they try to destroy the memory of your father or try to twist his words or his image? In every way they could. They try to discredit him publicly. They could not attack his character because he was well known. They could not attack his moral character because everybody knew my father and knew that he was a, a good person and an honest and, and a kind person that, that basically lived for the others. So it was very hard for the Cuban state security to try to discredit him in that way. And they, of course, always try to say that anyone that opposed the regime is a puppet of the imperialism and is um, is receiving orders from the from United States. That didn't work. Of course, always there is people that believe those lies. Mm-hmm. Um, there is always people that um, that are used by the regime. Uh, against dissidents and against opposition, and not just in Cuba, but also in the international community. And they use other forces and other resentments that people has in other parts of the world against a United States or against a political position or against any kind of idea or public figure that they could attack to try to relate the Cuban opposition movement and uh, the Cubans that want freedom in general with those uh, bad images that are also, in in many cases, are also a product of of a bad representation or a misrepresentation. And they use it a lot. I mean, but that's communist propaganda 101. Everybody knows (laughs) it. And they use it. And they use it, of course, because in some cases it worked. And they use it against my father. But I have to say, it was very hard for them to try to discredit him. My father was winner of the Saharov Prize in 2002, which is uh, delivered by the, by the European Parliament. He was five times nominated to the Nobel Peace Prize. In one of those occasions, Fidel Castro sent Hugo Chavez to Oslo to prevent Wow. That to prevent the Oslo Committee to give the the, the award to my father, so the Cuban state security has a big penetration in many international institutions around the globe, mm-hmm. and especially in in this hemisphere, of course, especially in Latin America, but around the globe in general, and they use everything to try to discredit him. Uh, but his last and more frequent resort was the violence, mm-hmm. uh, was the force, was... My house was almost always surrounded by the Cuban state security. My father was almost always followed 
by agents of the secret police. We were followed by agents. Children. Yeah, of the secret police. They visited our school. But since we were children, I mean, they visit my teachers at the university and then my chief in, in, in my work. But they were doing that since I was a baby, since <laughs> kindergarten. And the same thing with my brothers. And it's sometimes hilarious because it's ridiculous, but it's effective. It's a tactic of intimidation, not just intimidation of the person or the, or the, or, or the child, but intimidation of everybody surrounding that person. So it's a tactic of isolation of the whole family. They did it against my father. They did it against our family, but they do it against almost anyone in Cuba that dares to say what 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 they feel or think or or want mm-hmm. in in life. That's the totalitarian communist regime is. So let's talk about your own work. I've heard you described as stepping into your father's shoes. How do you view it? When did you get involved? Well, I was working with Harold Cepero within the Christian Liberation Movement. Uh, I, of course, working also very close to my to my father. Starting to work in the, in the last years of my university years, we enter, or well, I, I say we because we were a group of, of young people, but I entered to the um, formally to the to the Christian Liberation Movement and I start to work with my father and very closely with Harold. And after they were killed, my role just became much more visible in a big part just because of the circumstances. Not just my role in in the in the Christian Liberation Movement, but our role in fight for justice about the killing of my father and Harold. So it became very, very, very public. And we continue doing that in the international community, but also in the island. In some point became, in our mind, became very important to continue the very core of my father's work that was the citizen mobilization. Because at the end of the day, that's what the Varela Project is about. It's about giving the people in general, the Cuban people, a tool to identify with and to use to change the system. But as a network of work, as citizens, just demanding what uh, what we deserve and we should have. And the Varela Project was not just a, a bill, was not just a project of law, was also a call for a referendum. And that's also very linked with the philosophy of my father, if I could make a, that statement, because of his confidence in the people is that he was not trying to change the system by decree. He was trying to offer everybody the possibility to participate, to change in a legitimate and order and pacific way that system. Mm-hmm. And that's a referendum. <laughs> that's a free vote. That's what democracy invented. That's electoral process. In the Cuban case, we cannot go to free elections directly because there is a system that forbids political parties for going to free elections. You need to change the system. So the proposal of my father after 
the Cuban regime violated their own law to ignore the Varela project was to say to the regime, okay, you violate your own law, you violate the rights of, of everybody that actually, even the legal communist rights of everybody that actually signed the Varela project, you violate the um, international pacts that, uh, and treaties that even the Cuban state has sign it and you violate common sense by not asking mm. to the cuban people what do they want by saying that your regime is untouchable and irrevocable mm. and by the way irrevocable is a quote of the cuban communist constitution right. so the only thing that the cuban regime haven't done in 60 years is to ask to the people let's go just ask to the people if they want to change the system if they want free, fair, and multi-party elections. Right. And that was a document uh, and a campaign that my father started called Plebiscite Now. Let's go to the plebiscite and ask the people if they want free, fair, and multi-party elections. Because if they want so, we need to change the system. Mm -hmm. And it starts a transition process. And in this point, I have to say that the last free, fair, and multi-party elections that took place in my country were more or less in 1950. So the younger Cuban alive that participated in free fair and multi-party elections in Cuba is at least 86 years old right now, almost 70 years. The Cuban people haven't had that opportunity. So it's a matter of national interest. Whoa. So we should be asking to the Cuban people if they want so. And that was what my father started. And that's the idea that we continue with Cuba de Cide, which is citizen initiative to change the system through the citizen mobilization, but promoting the holding of a plebiscite as the tool to change the system. Of course, that we know that's not something that the Cuban regime wants to do. So the real strategy is the non-violent movement. The real strategy is the non-violent struggle, the mobilization of, of each Cuban to demand their right to participate in combination with the articulation of the international community, because we are not living in a in a bubble. And our experience is that the Cuban communist regime have the weapons and they are ready to use it against the people. So it's, it's not enough. The citizen mobilization is not enough. The pressure through the nonviolent actions it is also important the support of the international community to those Cubans that are demanding what is merely <laughs> logic, which right. is their right to self-determination, their right to decide uh, the system in which they want to live, their right to, to choose, their right to decide, their right to have free, fair, multi-party elections, which is also I like, mean, the most basic thing right. that the international community should be supporting. Well, Fidel Castro promised that in 1959, you know, yeah. so it would be fulfilling his promise finally. Exactly.
So you have met and spoke with both President Trump and Vice President Pence. How do you feel, were those meetings productive? What was the, the, the reason for meeting with them? Well, there were two different meetings. The first one was during the Summit of the Americas in Peru. Vice President Pence had the kindness of receiving me and we hold a press conference together. And I think it was very, very important for the Cuban people to listen from a representative of the administration of the United States that they support our right to decide, that they support the struggle of the Cuban people, that they are with the Cuban people. Of course, we always want some more. Right. Of course, we, uh, not just from the United States, I mean, that's something that each country, especially each country in our hemisphere, should be working for and should be supporting, which is, is a very basic exercise of the solidarity among brothers in, his, in this continent. But it's also a model of national security for many of these countries because the interference of the Cuban regime in many countries has been nefastous for a lot of peoples in, uh, in our hemisphere. Uh, we wouldn't be talking about the uh, humanitarian crisis in Venezuela without the intervention of the Cuban regime. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be talking about the crisis of refugee in Colombia without the intervention of the Cuban regime. We wouldn't be talking about the violence that was spread in Nicaragua two years ago without the coordination and the support of the Cuban regime. And that just uh, those are just a few of the most notorious examples uh, in the last years. But the intervention of the Cuban regime from the guerrilla movement till the social movement in Latin America is, in my opinion, the most important and the most destabilizing forces that Latin America and the whole hemisphere have endured for the last half of a century. Mm -hmm. So for many countries, the democratic change in Cuba is a model of national security. It's a model of stability. It's a model of preservation of the peace. It's a model of preservation of the self-determination of their own people. That's why we're asking for their solidarity and their support. And that's why I really appreciate those words coming from Vice President Pence. And that's why I'm also and the Cubans in general, many of Cubans at least, we are asking these countries in Latin America, but also United States, but also Canada, to stop contributing with the regime, stop giving funds to the regime, and start to, those, to make those contributions directly to the Cuban people. And the most important contribution that they could do is to support our right to decide, our right to change, uh, the system, and that's why it was also I appreciated a lot the opportunity to say this since directly to the president of the United States, to President Trump, a few months ago when uh, when I had the opportunity, and of course that opportunity was was used to to appreciate what this administration has done in the direction to support the Cuban people, but also to stay other steps that this administration 
could take and the next administration could also take because this is not a partisan issue. This mm -hmm. is a human right issue. This is a humanitarian issue also. This is a democracy issue. So all parties should agree in this. We, um, and I said this, QLC is not a movement. I mean, it's not an organization. It's a citizen initiative. So there is people that with all sorts of belief and political thinking, but well, we agree in the fact that Cuba should be democratic. So Cubans should have the right to decide their future. So we work together in this uh, initiative and we do not support a political party in any country of the world, but we support a public policy <laughs> towards the Cuban people and a one that should be aligned with the fact that the Cuban people have the right to determine their own future, have the right to exercise mm -hmm. the rights that every human has. That was part of what I mentioned to the president together with some recommendations as, for instance, supporting directly the Cuban people, not through or avoiding preventing the Cuban regime to take part in that uh, in that process. Although I know it's very hard because it's a, it's a totalitarian regime and nothing is completely clean because of that. But also there are other important steps that the administration of a uh, United States, whoever is in charge, could take in the direction of preventing money from criminal activities to go to the Cuban regime, mm -hmm. in the direction of uh, preventing the expansion of the diplomatic and intelligence influence of the Cuban regime. There is a leadership that this country could exert in the whole hemisphere in the direction of being solidarious mm -hmm. with those that are asking for democracy. And those are some of the steps that we ask from any democracy in this hemisphere and what we ask from this administration and what we will ask from the next administration too. Right. If folks listening are compelled to try to help out with like Cuba Decide or anything, how would they go about doing that? Because I think a lot of people are sympathetic, but they're like, what do I do? You know, I'm just, I'm a mechanic or I, I'm a musician or something. You know, what, what can they do? I really appreciate that question. We have, we have a network of volunteers and promoters of the campaign. Of course, the, our main base is in the island, which is when the sh where the change has to take place. But almost a third of the Cuban population lives out of the island. And they also have a role. And the international community and the citizens of the world also have a role. So if you think that you have time or resources or anything that you could contribute with, uh, with us, please go to our website, which is cubadecide.org, which is Cuba Decides, but without the S, cubadecide.org. And um, you could volunteer with us or you could make a donation for um, the campaign. It's very simple, very uh, specific because this is a very hard uh, struggle. This is a very dangerous struggle, especially for those that are inside the island. But this is also a very necessary struggle mm -hmm. that we are convinced we can finish. 
Yeah, they can buy a shirt or a coffee mug even. You can buy a shirt. You can try. A, you can buy a coffee cup. Uh, you can volunteer for us. You you could make a a donation. You could help us spread the voice, which is very important. You could um, help us and replicating our message in social media you could become a voice for uh, the freedom of cuba also um, we need that solidarity so uh, everybody's invited to learn more you can follow rosa maria paya on twitter and Instagram, and you can visit her website at cubadecide.org. Also, if you'd like to listen to some more like-minded interviews, you might check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 234, where Babalu blogs Alberto de la Cruz comes on the program to talk about the 13th of March tugboat massacre and the tragedy of Elian Gonzalez. And back on 211, we talked with historian Xilian about his biography of democratic and Christian martyr Lin Zhao and Chairman Mao's communist China. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 